Well, I got here. It's got to count for something. I was hoping he wasn't going to share all of the conversation we had on that trip. I was thinking, where's he going with this? Uh, we, had some, we had some fun conversation. There was laughter. There was laughter in the car. Um, I appreciate this opportunity to be here with you all. Um, be back home in Indiana. And uh, I uh, appreciate your pastor. I appreciate uh, his wife, Sister Tiffany. And I've watched you all from afar when I was in Alaska um, and saw the youth here. I saw the effort that's being put into this work and how you all have uh, strived to reach out into the community. And uh, those, those things have not escaped my notice. And I, I appreciate all that you're doing and all the zeal and energy that you're putting into this work and, and the opportunity that we see and hear around us. And praise God. Uh, for that opportunity, and uh, we, we're just, um, I want to do exactly what the Lord wants this weekend, and I've got some thoughts that uh, we'll start with and just see where the Lord takes us, but uh, um, I, uh, just for those who don't know me, I think most of you do, or you know of me, I was born and raised in Indiana, uh, my father, uh, Elder John Keene, pastored Mission Works, uh, they were, he and my aunt, uh, others were raised at Bethel Missionary Baptist, and um, my dad was uh, pastoring different places, and so I hopped around as a kid. I did get to spend some time with Bethel, and Brother Jeff was one of the, the, the big kids that I looked up to when I was some of your guys' age. He was the cool teenager, and I just thought he walked on water. He and Brother John Gravens were just the coolest guys, and when they gave me the time of day and actually talked to me, it was just, it was pretty special. So I was excited when he shook my hand tonight when I came in. Um, thank you for that. <laughs> so, um, but uh, I was, uh, um, my, most of my teenage years were spent at Harvest Missionary Baptist, where uh, my father and Elder Bruce Adamson uh, did a mission work and was organized there into a church, and uh, Brother Bruce was pastoring, and I was, uh, I realized I was lost back when I was at Bethel, uh, when uh, Brother Jeff's father was pastor. I was probably about eight years old, I remember where I was sitting, Remember, Brother Jeff's brother had just gotten saved, came back and hugged me, and I knew things weren't right. And I lied about it for years to myself. I lied about it to other people. Finally, when I was about a freshman in high school, right before my freshman year in high school, a good deacon, Brother Terry Adamson, came back to me, shake my hand, and I lost it. And I acknowledged that I was lost, finally. But I was a chronic seeker. I sought for uh, several years, and I didn't get saved until after my freshman year in college uh, when I was 18 years old, and you'll probably hear more about that at some point. No doubt that's going to come out, but uh, the Lord saved me uh, in a summer revival, 1995, however many years that's been uh, since, uh, since now, June of 1995 is when I was saved, and so I'm thankful for that, and, and a few years later, after I had met my wife, Mary, um, the Lord called me to preach. In uh, January of 1998, and so um, we were in a little church up in uh, Lafayette, Indiana. I went to Purdue. Some of you aren't going to like that. Some of you are going to like it. That's okay. Um, and uh, I was in a little church up, up there. We were visiting uh, Buck Creek Southern Missionary Baptist Church, and uh, preacher was preaching, and uh, I don't remember all of what he was preaching, but I know the Lord made it really clear in my heart. He just said, preach. 
And um, I went back to my home church and acknowledged that. And a couple years later, after we were married, uh, we uh, went to visit uh, Brother Brad and Kim Foster in uh, Alaska. And that's where we met Brother Jeff Elliott. And Brother Jeff invited us to come back and preach a revival. And we did. And at the same time, God started working in our hearts to call us to Alaska. So we moved to Alaska in February of 2000. We left uh, Indiana, just my wife and I, and uh, went up there. And God uh, allowed us to work with Brother Jeff for a while and start a new mission work in Anchorage that eventually became the anchor. Um, And we had all of our kids up there in Alaska. And we were there for 22 years. And it was just uh, last May. Uh, in 2022, that uh, the Lord called us to um, begin a pastorate in Huntingdon, Tennessee. And so we've been down there for a year now. It's a small town. I was living in Anchorage, which was the big city of Alaska, uh, about 300 and some thousand people. And so I moved to a town of about 1,500 people, um, 10,000 in the county. And so it's small town life. It's been a big change. And everybody always waves at everybody every time you're out driving around. So I pulled up to the stop sign over there, you know, and I'm coming here to the church and I wave and the guy just kind of looks at me. I'm back home. These are my people. All right. So, so, okay. I can keep my hand down. So I'll try to, I'll try to reintegrate here, uh, this, this week. But, um, anyway, I'll share more as, as the week goes on and as, as is appropriate, but I want to get into the word tonight and I want to go to, um, a really powerful sermon uh, in Acts chapter uh, 17, and I want us to look at that a little bit tonight, just part of it. Um, is this for me, brother? Okay, I want to avail myself of this. No doubt if you've, if you've grown up in church, you've been in church very long, you've heard uh, this sermon preached, taught, maybe you've read through it, studied, and meditate on it, meditated on it. It's a really special sermon. I'm going to read this for us here, starting in Acts chapter 17, verse 22. This is when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Athens in Greece, and he was preaching at a place called Mars Hill, or also called the Areopagus. Um, And he was in this place that had all of these different um, altars to all of these different gods, He was kind of between locations of doing mission work. He was waiting for, I think, Timothy and some of the others to come and catch up with him. But while he was there, he was trying to bide his time and be patient. But he saw all these different altars, and his heart was stirred in him. And he had this opportunity to go up to Mars Hill and to be able to to preach the word in front of probably a council of the men of Athens. And so this was a tremendous opportunity And the way the Apostle Paul preaches this message is really significant, and I'm going to talk about the significance in a second, but I'm going to go ahead and just read this sermon for us. It says in verse 22, Acts chapter 17, Then Paul stood up in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, 
neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And is made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And that's the end of that message, the rec- what we have recorded of that message the Apostle Paul preached on Mars Hill. This is a significant sermon. It's perhaps one of the most complete outlines of a message the Apostle Paul preached. But what's also significant about this message is that you find that when Paul went to a town, he would first go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews. And wouldn't you love to know what the Apostle Paul said to the Jews, the people who were raised reading the Old Testament, who knew all of those stories, had all of that background, their Sunday school, so to speak. I tend to think the the book of Hebrews, I don't know that Paul wrote it or not necessarily specifically, but I do believe it's probably a summary of the types of things the Apostle Paul said when he went to the synagogues to talk to the Jewish people. But what's interesting about this message is Paul is not talking to Jews. He's not talking to people who were raised with the Bible, who were raised knowing about all the Old Testament people, who were raised understanding the story of creation, all of that. Paul is talking to a people who have no reference point for God, the true God of the universe. And this is how the Apostle Paul speaks to this Gentile audience. And as people who are living in a post-Christian culture like we are, where more and more people have no reference point for Christianity because they've not been raised in church, they've not heard these things, we have people coming in who don't know of these things, this message is, is really educational for us. Because it shows us how the Apostle Paul met people right where they were at when they didn't have any clear reference point for the God of the Bible. And the Apostle Paul starts to teach them, to speak to them, to try to build a bridge upon which he can take the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is a really significant sermon for us to understand. And I think it is amazing relevance for us today. And I want us to think about this because when I was, was looking at this passage the last few days and, and, and meditating on these things, I start kind of asking myself some questions because, I mean, here he is back in, in Athens, you know, in Greece, and these people were, you know, have, worshiping all these different idols, and how, how relevant is this to us? When he goes there, the first thing he says to them 
It says here, as I'm reading the King James, it says, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Now, as we read that in our ears today, it sounds, sounds like the Apostle Paul is starting off by slapping the people across the face. You're too superstitious. I don't think that's exactly what was meant. What, what the, Apostle said to them was, the Apostle Paul said was, you are very religious. You are all very religious. I don't think he started off by slapping them in the face because he was trying to communicate a message to them. You all are very religious. I mean, look at all these different uh, altars that you all worship at. You all are very, very religious. They had devotions and they had worship. They, meaning that they thought these gods were worth their time, worth their attention, worth their money or the food or the incense or whatever. They were appealing to those gods because they thought those gods were worthy and they also honestly wanted something from those gods. And so I was thinking about this. Well, what, what altars would the Apostle Paul have seen? Like, as he went to Athens, what, what altars would Paul, the Apostle Paul have seen? Well, no doubt there would have been an altar to Athena. I mean, it was Athens, right? Named after Athena, the goddess of wisdom and warfare. There was probably an altar to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, lust, beauty, Pleasure, procreation, probably an altar to Zeus there, god of the sky, thunder, king of all the gods, an altar to Poseidon, god of the sea, storms, earthquakes, and horses, probably an altar to Artemis, he was the god of hunting, wild animals, and nature, probably an altar to Plutus, who was the god of abundance and wealth. Probably an altar to Hermes, the god of travel, of merchants, of games, and athletics. Probably an altar to Apollo, the god of archery, music, dance, healing, and diseases. Probably an altar to Dionysus, the god of winemaking, parties, and theater. No doubt in all of these places with all of these altars in Athens, the capital of Greece, Paul probably saw altars to all of those gods. If the Apostle Paul were to come back and tour America today, you think he'd find any altars? He could just scroll through Facebook, couldn't he? He wouldn't have to go. For, he could just start scrolling through Facebook. And even though the names have changed, he could see that things really haven't changed. They really haven't changed at all. Idolatry is just as rampant today. And so this message is still relevant today. And one thing the Apostle Paul focused on was this altar to an unknown God. He saw it, literally, it was inscribed to the unknown God. Do you think the Apostle Paul would find an altar to an unknown God today? I was reading, I'm going to share this, just a little excerpt. I was reading uh, an article on that showed up in my Apple News, and you never know what you're going to get there. 
But this article was about a race to crack a test signal from aliens. And this is about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And as I was reading this article, there, there's, there's a group of people and, and lots of people who are spending a lot of time and energy trying to prepare themselves to get this signal from outer space from aliens. And they are, they're spending a lot of time and money and they've got these, uh, you know, the satellites and all the things to bring it in. And they're really trying to think, you know, they, they may speak differently. They may communicate differently. They may use shapes. They may use geometric patterns or sequences of, of numbers and all these kinds of things. And so they're trying to expand their minds and brains to be able to receive whatever information this unknown life might send to us. And here's something, uh, Dr. DePaulis, it says, she says, she takes her inspiration from humankind's desire to know if we have alien neighbors and from the weight of our apparent cosmic isolation. When we started realizing the size of the cosmos and had the unbearable sense of being the only civilization in all of this, that's been quite heavy on humans, she said. We feel very privileged and at the same time very fragile because we simply don't know why we are so unique and why we exist in the first place. And so they're reaching out, reaching out, trying to hear something from an unknown God in a sense to tell us why we are here. Why are we so special? I think the Apostle Paul would find the very same things today that he found back 2,000 years ago in Athens, Greece. The same types of sentiments are present today. And what I want to do uh, this evening is just touch on a couple verses of this passage and think about what the Apostle Paul said as he is trying to express to these people who the unknown God is. This God that could help them understand why they're here. This God who could help them understand their purpose and their destiny and why they are so unique out of everything else that exists in this world. And Paul says, Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And the first thing he tells us at the beginning of verse 24 is that God is the creator. This is the God who made the world and all things therein, as he says. The first thing Paul is trying to communicate is that God is bigger than all of this. God is so much bigger than all of this. David wrote in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? You see, David had that same sense of how unique we are in all of this, yet David didn't have an unknown God. He had a God who he knew about, not just knew about, he knew this God, and he was still in this place of amazement that this God who could do all of these things, who was so vast, would care intimately about our lives. 
You see, as a God who created all of this, he cannot be contained in it. Let me ask you a question, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But how many of you, when you hear the reports, the information about what comes back from these telescopes, and they're finding and seeing things that we've never seen before, and that our universe is just, you know, so much bigger than we ever imagined it even is. How many of you, as you hear and you learn about those things, does that cause your faith to maybe waver just a little bit? Because it just is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, it's just going on and on. I mean, it's just, it's just there's more and more out there than we ever realized. Doesn't that reflect exactly what the Scriptures tells us about our God? Doesn't the fact that it just goes on and on and on like that, and there's so much we don't know, we never knew about, never saw, never understood, doesn't that exactly confirm the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God, that they are teaching us something about this God that we read about, that he is infinite, and yet we have this in our minds that, oh yeah, he's infinite, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's all-knowing, all these things. God is all that, and then we start to go, oh, see how big this is. Well, can God really be that big? That's the point. (laughs) That's the point. He is absolutely that infinite. He's bigger than that. And he cannot be defined by any one thing or collection of things that he's created. You can't look at any of this stuff that's out here and understand God completely. You can know something about him, right? You can learn things about him, but you can't define him. If you would imagine maybe a painting that you're aware of, think the, the Mona Lisa. Maybe you don't know that one, but the dog's playing poker. Whatever your painting is. Can you tell me everything about the artist? Everything you can know about the artist by looking at that picture. Well, you know something of their skill something of their talent, something of their perspective on art. But you don't know the artist by their painting. And neither can we fully understand and comprehend our God just by his creation. He is so much bigger than all of this. And that's what the Apostle Paul is first trying to communicate to these people on Mars Hill. He said he is the one who made all of this. And not only that, he goes on saying, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. That word Lord, we we just kind of hear it and it rolls off of our tongue. We think about, you know, he's the Lord God. The Lord means something. It means one who has rule and reign, control over a master, a king. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. There is nothing that's not under his reign. And and what Paul is telling these people at this moment is not only did he create this, he is presently in charge of all of these things. He's not laid that down. He's not laid that down a bit. He's not given up his rights. He's not given up his reign. We read in Psalm 2, I love this psalm, and it starts off, you know, why do the nations rage? 
You know, all these people are just going on and they're, and they're, and they're trying to, to shake their fist at God. They're trying to cast off the bonds of any of God's rules, anything that God has set up. I mean, our own society is trying to cast off the bonds of God, of Christian morality, the things that God has used to shape our culture in a very blessed way. They're trying to cast off all these things. And you know what God's doing? I mean, we all get mad and we're all getting upset. We're shaking our fists. God's laughing. God's laughing. That's what it says. He, he, he laughs at this, that people are trying to pretend like he doesn't exist, like trying to pretend that his rules don't matter and they can just be thrown away and that there's no consequence. God laughs at the raging of the nations and the unbelievers who are trying to take over his rule because he knows they have not affected his power or his ability to do what he wants, when he wants, in any way, shape, or form. God is just as much in control today as he has ever been. It hasn't changed. The hearts of kings, the Bible says, are as waters in his hand to direct in whatever way that he sees fit. And we see even in the life of Job that Satan could go no farther than God would allow him to go. He could do no more than God would allow him to do. And God is this God who is creator and who reigns over all of this creation, heaven and earth. And as a king, he can set rules, he can set laws, he can enact judgment. And he can grant mercy because he is in control. He retains that authority. And so his laws and his truths that he has set up are just as much enforced today. And it doesn't matter if you say, well, I don't believe the Ten Commandments. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe, you know, there's just one way. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't change what God has said. I mean... I'm sorry, and we can talk about it. I'd love to reason with you, but ultimately, you know, whether I can convince you or not, God looks at it all this and laughs because fact is fact, reality is reality, and it's not changed by our whims. It's not decided by public opinion. We're not going to vote on it, and that's what it is. God is Lord. He is Lord. And so the best thing that we can do is to understand what it is he's set up and the rules by which we are to live this life and the way that we might get to eternity and understand what he's saying and respond to what he's saying because that is the only thing that's going to work. Paul goes on in this verse 24 and he says, this God who is creator and who is Lord, it says he dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And I want to pick up in verse 29 as well. Because not only does he not dwell in temples, Paul says in verse 29, because for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. You see, that's what the Athenians were doing. They were making likenesses of their gods. They had statues of this is what my God looks like. This is what my God does, you know, and they had all this divided and parsed out in their life. And Paul is telling them he doesn't live in a temple. 
and he doesn't look like anything you can make. This God is uncontainable, and this God is incomparable. He's trying to communicate these points to these people because that's not the way they're used to thinking about their gods. You see, their gods could fit in their minds. And Paul is telling them the God, the true God, is bigger than your imagination. He doesn't live in a temple or a building. We say, well, didn't the Jewish people have a temple? Didn't they have tabernacles? They absolutely did. They absolutely did. They, they built uh, a temple. David laid up the materials and Solomon built it. But when Solomon dedicated that temple, he was under no illusion that that's where God lived. That that's where God was contained. In fact, Solomon said, will God indeed dwell on the earth? I mean, is God really going to come and, and just limit himself to earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. That's what Solomon said. Heaven and the highest heaven, it's not big enough for you. And he didn't know, even understand how big the universe is, but that verse still holds true today. And it cannot contain the fullness of God. How much less this house that I have built. When the Lord saved me, he came to dwell in my heart. And I believe this is a sound church and the Lord dwells in this place. But it's simply a manifestation of his presence. He is not limited to this place. He's not limited to this people. He's not limited to these walls. He's not limited to me. He's not limited to inside of you. We are blessed to receive a special manifestation of his presence. But he is not contained within us. He is not defined by us. He is not limited by us. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing in this world to which he can be compared. That's the point Paul was trying to make in verse 29. You can't make something. You can't draw him. You can't build a statue of him. Not just because he said not to, because what would you make it look like? What would you do? What would you do that you could look at that and say, that's like God? Isaiah 6, I love the passage where those seraphims are around the throne of God and these, these beings that are actually strong enough, created by God, strong enough to be able to exist in his presence, which is no small thing. Probably the strongest created beings that exist. They got six wings. You know what they're doing with two of them? They're covering their eyes. They're covering their eyes because they cannot gaze upon the fullness of that presence of God. These strongest created beings are covering their eyes with two of their wings while they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We can see his glory we can see evidences if we would have eyes to see and look, we could see that there must be some brilliant intelligence and power to make all of these things come into being, that it all continues to exist. 
Yesterday I was preaching Sunday night about, uh, about worry and anxiety from Matthew chapter 6. And one of the, the key remedies against worry is to look at the birds and recognize the fact that God takes care of these animals who neither plant food or harvest food or store food up in barns, but God continuously is working to make sure they have what they need. For thousands of years, birds have continued to exist and they didn't have to do any of that stuff because God has taken care of them. God has done these things. We can look out here and we can see evidences of his glory, but we cannot look upon him. And there's nothing with which to compare him in this world. So how then might we know this God? How might we know anything truly about this God? Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, John said, no one has ever seen God. The only God, speaking of Jesus, who has been at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus came to give us a revelation of God that we had never, ever, ever, ever had before. It's in the face of Jesus Christ that we can come to know this God, that we can gain access in a sense, to the throne room of God, that one day, one day, when that day comes, those of us who've been saved, we're going to be resurrected. We're going to see him as he is, the Bible says. We will be given bodies fit, souls fit to stand before the presence of God and behold him with an open face, even though seraphims can't do that now. And you will be able to look into the face of God someday because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. Jesus was challenging his disciples. They were saying, show us the Father, show us the Father. And Jesus said, how long have I been with you and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus Christ is the door to knowing this uncontainable and incomparable God. And finally, I want to look in verse 25. The Apostle Paul goes on and said that this God who is creator and who is king and who cannot be contained and who is, as we've spoken of in verse 29, is incomparable. He tells us in verse 25, neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. These people were used to having to prop up their gods. There was this expectation that their gods needed them to bring offerings, to do things, to keep them alive, so to speak. Maybe some of you all have seen those Santa Claus movies, you know, Santa Claus movies where Santa Claus is losing his powers because people are stopping believing in Santa Claus and the whole movie is about everybody's got to believe in Santa Claus and Santa Claus can have his magic back. Because if people don't believe and Santa loses his magic, my friends, God does not need your belief to exist. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to feed him. 
He doesn't need you to come to church to exist, to reign. He doesn't need you to have all the power that he has. God doesn't need anything from you to be everything that he is. He is not sustained by us. You know, we emphasize that you are not saved by good works. You're not saved by doing good deeds. Eternity is not about do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That doesn't work because the Bible says your good deeds, the things you think are really good deeds in God's sight really are bad. Because your best is not good enough. Because he's perfectly holy. And all the things we do is stained by sin. Even on our best day, it's stained by sin. But there's another reason why works can't save us. Because God doesn't need your good deeds. God doesn't need your good deeds. You cannot add anything to him. King David was blessed by God in an amazing way. God allowed this man to go, this young man to go from keeping sheep to killing Goliath to being a, a, a great warrior to leading men and surviving, being tracked down by the king to becoming king himself to expanding Israel's borders. And this amazing king, he was so blessed. And David said, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. He went and spoke to Nathan the prophet, said, Nathan, I, I have it in my heart. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan said, oh man, geez, what, that's good. You, what's in your heart, you do that. Well, the Lord came to Nathan at night in a dream and said, you tell David, you tell David, you're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. You see, something was going on in David's heart and there was good intention there. But God wanted it to be clearly understood. You don't, I don't need you, but you need me. You're not going to build me a house, David, but I will build you a house. And that sounds really cruel that God doesn't need you. But it's absolutely true. But I'll tell you this, God wants you. God wants you. And God loves you. And this infinite God, this creator God, this king God, this incontainable God, this God who cannot be defined, this God who doesn't need you, he gave for you his only son that you might be saved. He gave his son to die for you because he desires you. He desires to know you. He desires to, to lay his love and his kindness upon you. And if that bothers you, because you somehow, you want a God that needs you. You need to get over that or you're not going to find salvation. You're never going to bring anything to this God that is going to convince him to save you. One of the reasons, I, the things that's been on my heart as I've tried to share this tonight, I want to try to get across to you is I spent a lot of years trying to bargain with God and trying to figure out God and trying to tell God, I'll do this if you'll save me and I'll do that if you'll save me and all these kinds of things. And it was not till I got to the end realizing that I was a wretched sinner that deserved hell and I could do absolutely nothing to argue with him to give me salvation and I simply gave up and looked to him to help me that's when he did it. 
We need to understand these things, whether we can articulate them all or whether it's just a sense in our heart. We've got to get to that place with God that we might be saved. What does this have to do with your salvation? Well, God is your creator and he is your Lord. He has a law and he has authority. He has set judgment and he has crafted a path, a narrow path for salvation through Jesus Christ. Christ. And I don't care if everybody wants to say all roads lead to heaven. God has said there is one road to heaven, one way, one truth, one life, and that is through his son. I met a young lady. She was a member at the work in in, uh, in, um, the valley where Brother Jeff and I were at early on. She gave a testimony of being saved. And I was, uh, she seemed to kind of fall by the wayside. And I saw her one day outside the museum in Anchorage and started talking to her. And I said, well, how you doing? You know, I miss seeing you around. No, I'd love to come to see you, come back to church. And she's like, well, I, I've, I've come to realize there's, there's more than one way. And I just asked her, I said, well, then why did Jesus have to die? Because when Jesus was praying in that garden, he asked his father, if there's any other way, let that be, if there's any other way. And he was not spared but he was sent to the cross. There's one way. Our God, the creator God, the Lord of all, has set one way and praise God he's made a way that we might come back to him. He has made that path, but he has made that path narrow. He has made that clear path. And my friend, that path has been paid by the blood of his son to give you opportunity. Number two, God's ways are beyond our comprehension. You're not going to figure him out. You're not going to figure salvation out. You can't orchestrate this. You can't manipulate this. You must trust him. You must yield to him. When God is speaking to your heart, when God is stirring your heart, when his spirit and love is coming and showing you things aren't right and you need to be saved, my friend, you don't have to understand it all. You just need to know enough to know you need to respond to God and seek him. That's all you need to know. And my friend, if you simply go to him and trust, even in complete ignorance of so many things, but knowing that you are a sinner in need of a savior and you look to him, my friend, that's all you really need to know. That's all you really need to know is that you're just, just trust him. You will never, ever, ever figure him out. Eternity is not long enough to comprehend our God. We will get to unfold the fullness of his glories over eternity, and it will fill our days with endless pleasure and joy. We are not going to unwrap that onion here in this world, friends. We are going to have to live by faith. We're going to have to trust him. There is no salvation apart from faith. Trust Number three, God doesn't need you. You can't come and barter with him. You can't bargain with him with anything. You have nothing to bring him, not even yourself. Yet he wants you. He desires you. He wants to save your soul. And finally, God can be seen. And God can be served. And you can be saved through Jesus. Jesus is that narrow gate. Jesus is that way. That, that even this very night, this very night, this God that is presently an unknown God to you can become not just a God you know about. But he wants to be your father. He wants you to be his child. And he has given everything. He has laid down his only son 
that you might have life, that you might know this God. There is no greater thing in this world than any of us could ever have than to know this God. And I know we walk, even those of us who are saved, we walk through life most of the time not even realizing the treasure we carry within us. And every once in a while, God gives us a glimpse and it fills us up. And my friend, that's just a taste. That's just a drip. We, you know, eyes have not seen and ears have not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. You have the opportunity to know this God. And I pray and I beg you that you would not turn this opportunity down. I will turn the service over to Brother Derek, but I, as an invitation is given tonight, the invitation is come to God through Jesus Christ. Come to God through Jesus Christ.